This week, an attack on Camp Bastion, more green on blue killings, big challenges in Afghanistan. Sometimes disputes, arguments are settled by the use of guns in a way that we're not used to in, in Europe. And the defence battles ahead if Scotland were to become independent. Scotland would want to be a non-nuclear weapon state and it's pretty clear that the UK would want to remain a nuclear weapon state. The bodies of three British servicemen have been repatriated to the UK today, two of them the latest victims of so-called green-on-blue attacks in Afghanistan. So far this year, 51 coalition troops have been killed by people in Afghan uniform, the forces supposedly preparing to take over from ISAF. Just days after the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond met Hamid Karzai in Kabul and assisted efforts are being stepped up to stop such attacks, NATO restricted joint operations with Afghan forces. For now, partnered operations are restricted to battalion level and above. Anything else must be authorised at a high level. Sir William Patey is a former British ambassador to Afghanistan. He's told BFBS the Taliban are partly, but not entirely, to blame for the rising levels of attacks. There is an element of the Taliban trying to infiltrate the armed forces because I think they've been particularly unsuccessful in holding ground in, in the overall campaign, I think. So this is them switching tactics, which we've seen, seen before. General Allen is in a better position to... Uh, put a figure on it and he himself has said perhaps 25% of these incidents can be attributed to infiltration by the Taliban with the overwhelming majority being attributed to cultural differences. And I think we've got to remember that Afghanistan's had 30 years of conflict and war and there's a lot of uh, bruises out there. We have to accept that uh, sometimes disputes, arguments are settled by the use of guns in a way that we're not used to in, in Europe. He admits it's tough for British troops' morale, particularly the tricky issue of trust in the Afghans they work alongside. Well, I think that is understandable, but a lot of our forces will have been working closely with Afghans uh, over, over time, and they will, they will know themselves. Uh, but it's uh, obviously uh, not a healthy atmosphere, but our troops will be right to uh, be alert, uh, be aware, uh, and I think that is uh, something that we you know, will have to accept as a reality. But the overwhelming majority of Afghans are loyal to their, uh, to their own forces and get on well with ISAF troops. So that is, a, that is also worth taking into account. Ultimately, he says, it will be down to the people of Afghanistan to move things forward. Well, it's going to be uh, difficult. It's going to be messy, I think. But... Uh, provided the commitments that were made at the NATO summit in Chicago to fund the Afghan security forces, provide the, the commitments at Tokyo to help uh, Afghans with their development process, Afghanistan has a chance. But it's also down to Afghans. Uh, they have to uh, uh, make the best future for their own country. So they've got a big contribution to make. We can't do it for them. We can help them, and we need to do everything we can to help them, but at the end of the day, it's going to be down to the Afghans. That was the former ambassador to Afghanistan, Sir William Patey. Well, I'm joined now by Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Hello, Professor Rogers. Um, Hello. Did ISAF have any alternative to scaling back these joint patrols at low level? 
I don't think so, no. I mean, they may continue, but they're going to be much more closely monitored. But the problem is that the, um, the green-on-blue attacks really do have uh, a very considerable effect. It's not across the whole of the country. Um, it's very much in the south and southeast, by and large. But one of the surprises is not so much where you have the police involvement. Um, many of the police are actually Pashtun, but where you have the involvement of uh, Afghan National Army troops, many of whom, the great majority of whom, are not actually Pashtun. They come from other parts of Afghanistan. But it has been a developing problem. I think Taliban and other armed opposition groups are actively involved. But there's also, to an extent, uh, uh, an antagonism coming from people who may not be allied to these groups. And that is made worse by some of the difficult incidents that's been. I mean, one example a week ago was the, the killing of, uh, of eight Afghan women who were collecting firewood and the wounding of a number of others. And that has quite a profound effect on opinion within Afghanistan. We simply do have to take that into account. And, and indeed, this uh, American film as well, which has inflamed the situation. Um, Britain says its strategy stays the same. What impact will this have on operations? Well, it, what is said in public by the Ministry of Defence, I mean, does not almost always relate to what actually happens on the ground. And the reality is there's going to be a lot of rethinking about the continuing training process for the police and particularly the army. Uh, and this is really at the root of the whole ISAF policy at present. I mean, the whole thing is essentially to hand over what are, to what are very large forces. The police and army combined in Afghanistan are about a third of a million strong. Uh, and it all depends on handing over to them and leaving the country able to take take care of his own security. It's not at all clear that is going to happen and it is made more difficult by the nature of the Karzai regime and we, we learnt this morning that the quite popular and rather pro-British pro governor of Helmand province, Gulab Magal, has been sacked and has been replaced by a general who works for the Afghan intelligence service and is close to Karzai. So we have all the political problems going on as well. So it does mean, uh, to put it very mildly, a pretty difficult situation over the next two years. Indeed, also here is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Hello. Um, not just the green on blue attacks, we've also had this audacious assault on Camp Bastion. How could so many insurgents get so close and cause that much damage? I think we... Not everybody's an insurgent. I mean, you, yes, you've got an attack which was well organised, right sort of weapon used, uh, there was a hole in the perimeter defence, how did that get there if it wasn't cut internally, etc. We've got to remember that, for example, if you take the green on blue killings... 75% of them were not directly linked to Taliban. There are other circumstances in, in, in Thailand, that's particularly important. The long term, uh, and that's if I'm sitting in Camp Bastion and I'm about to go to Afghanistan, what is my future going to be there? The long term relies very much on, as, as Paul Rogers says, on the Afghan army, the Afghan police, 350,000 of them. But most importantly, on the mid, mid the, the middle management of those people, the company commander level, captains, both in police and in the army, because that is going to be the future, the long-term future. These are the people that will assume the training role, so, which, which, which is so important. The handing over to, uh, to uh, uh, the, the governor's job to an army intelligence general, you've got to look at the other link, and that's with Pakistan intelligence. And that is another part of the picture. That's why it's so complicated and whether you're going to actually pull guys in from going on patrols and that's going to be starting within a few weeks again. Uh, whether you're going to do that or not, you've got to consider the wider aspect of all this. That strategy, we're talking really about tactics.
Uh, Paul Rogers, the day before this attack on Camp Bastion, Philip Hammond, the Defence Secretary, was, was hinting at perhaps a faster drawdown from Afghanistan. Uh, do you think the withdrawal timetable will stand, and should it stand, given the kind of things we're seeing happening at the moment? This is almost entirely dictated by American attitudes. The United States is absolutely dominant in all this, and Obama has more or less decided that this is an unwinnable war. The surge did not bring the Taliban to the negotiating table, and the United States wants to withdraw the great majority of its troops by the end of 2014, and Britain will follow suit. The Americans plan to leave quite a few troops and to have special forces and drones and the rest, but it's going to be a small shadow. I think there are 90-plus thousand American troops still there. It'll probably be under 10,000 and probably just a handful of Brits. Um, the reality, I think, is whatever is said in public, there may be a speeding up. Chris Christopher, um, when we went into Afghanistan, the reason given was to make Britain a safer place. Um, between now and the withdrawal of combat troops, what needs to be happening on the ground there? What kind of progress needs to be made to actually make sure that that original aim actually makes some progress between now and 2014? Well, you could argue, in fact, that Britain is a safe place or safer place, but it may not be because of Afghanistan. What's gone on there has got a large lot, uh, uh, largely to do with the more resources and the different workings of the security uh, people, MI5, etc., uh, back in the United Kingdom. But the important thing is whether we're going to come home early or not. Let's think of it two, two quick ways. One is logistics. You cannot just bring people home that quickly. The second thing is the United Kingdom will not actually have a, an advance pullout from 2014 without the Americans saying they can do. And at the moment, the Americans wouldn't even dream of saying such a thing. Well, this week's events, in particular the attack on Camp Bastion, has led to increased political pressure from some quarters to speed up withdrawal from Afghanistan. Today, the Army Families Federation is holding an annual conference. We've asked some of those attending what's their biggest concern about Afghanistan. The safety of our soldiers over there. The health and well-being of service personnel um, when dealing with their counterparts. People who have a different agenda don't readily come with a, with a tag above their head to tell you what their motivation is. Can't really see the 2014 drawback happening. My main concern is the, the dwindling support for families back home. Um, I think operations in Afghanistan are hard enough without the threat of redundancies. Professor Paul Rogers, um, the safety of British troops very much on people's minds there. Have recent events fundamentally changed the relationship with the Afghan security forces in Afghanistan? Not fundamentally. No, I think the relationship is still quite good there. I've had many opportunities to talk to young squaddies coming back from Afghanistan. They remain rather more confident of the Afghan National Army, a lot less confident of the Af Afghan police, for whom they're, they're really very dubious. Uh, it's not a fundamental change, but it is drip by drip, and I think the more important thing from the British government's point of view is that it is steadily decreasing the support of the British public for Britain to stay in Afghanistan. That is incremental rather than sudden, but last week's event certainly added a great deal to that. Um, Christopher, one thing that is not very much talked about is the green-on-green -green attacks that go on in Afghanistan, so Afghans turning against each other, and that situation presumably could be exacerbated or get worse once combat troops leave. You've got who controls Afghanistan security. That's hence the idea of handing over that rule to 350,000 Af Af Afghans. But I was saying earlier, that is the huge task... Quite frankly, politically, there are not that many people who would turn around and say, well, that, uh, say anything else, but, well, that's their problem. 
but it is a, a, a huge and it's problem. It's regional problem as well. What happens in the south and the, the ability to control, the ability of Taliban to move in, the ability of Pakistanis, for example, to influence what's going on, what happens to the Central Asian republics, what they think should be happening in Afghanistan, the conflict, the, or the apparent conflict, say, between the Indians and, 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 and the Pakistanis for control and who has the most influence, those are the things that will decide the future of the, of the Afghan on the ground in his house, not necessarily the, the, the pullout. Christmas Day with us, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Still to come this week, is Afghanistan becoming cricket's next powerhouse? And Paddy Ashdown on the Cockleshell Heroes. There are still two years before Scotland's independence referendum, but the implications for the forces are already under discussion. First Minister Alex Salmond has insisted an independent Scotland would be nuclear-free, and that would mean Trident-faced eviction from its home at the Faslane base on the Clyde. But how would you go about divorcing Scotland's defence assets from the rest of the UK, and what kind of military could the country afford? Earlier I spoke to Professor Malcolm Chalmers, Director of Research at the Royal United Services Institute, and I started by asking him that all-important nuclear question. It's absolutely clear Scotland would want to be a non-nuclear weapon state and it's pretty clear that the UK would want to remain a nuclear weapon state. Uh, but the, the basic technical problem would be there would be nowhere to put uh, the nuclear force, at least in the short term, in the rest of the UK. So for a Scottish government to insist on that force leaving very quickly, within okay. a year or so, would effectively mean that the, the UK could no longer maintain an operational nuclear arsenal. And that would be a pretty, pretty hostile act uh, in circumstances where an independent Scotland uh, would be very vulnerable and would indeed require good relations with its, it, what would now be its southern neighbour in order to uh, prosper economically. Just talk us through some of the defence issues that would actually be facing an independent Scotland. I think an independent Scotland would in very large measure have to be starting from scratch and building its defence force. And certainly I think there's some elements of the army which it could perhaps take over from the British army. Uh, but most of the assets based in, in Scotland right now, uh, uh, very advanced combat aircraft, uh, the, the Trident submarines obviously, but also the Astute class submarines, uh, are simply too expensive for a country of, of Scotland's size and, uh, and economic base. Uh, People in the SNP talk about uh, Norway and Denmark being possible models, so probably their budgets uh, are more than Scotland could afford, but that's the sort of order of magnitude you're talking about. And I'm sure over time, Scotland could uh, build defence forces which were comparable to, to some of those neighbouring small states, and if it was a NATO, then that would add additional security protection. Should Scotland become, an independent Scotland become a member of NATO, that would throw up issues about its its views on nuclear deterrence and disarmament? It certainly would. And the, the SNP conference this year is having a debate about whether the SNP should change its policy and and agree to Scotland becoming a member of NATO if, if NATO wants to have it. Uh, but the, the past reluctance the SNP's uh, part in this issue has been because of, of NATO's nuclear policy. Now, the issue of UK basing of Trident in Scotland is the most difficult issue in that by far. And as I've said, I think it's, it's, it's incredible to believe an independent Scotland could 
could really expel Trident rapidly without creating such a crisis with its southern neighbour that it would do itself significant economic damage. There would also be the issue of how far Scotland was prepared to sign up to NATO uh, nuclear policy statements which make it clear that nuclear weapons are a, a very important part of, of NATO's overall nuclear posture, uh, defence posture. Having said that, I think it's also true uh, that there are a number of other uh, NATO member states like Spain and Denmark and Norway who have policies of, of not allowing the basing of US nuclear weapons in our territory uh, and are more sceptical than, that, than uh, countries like France and the UK. And where does an independent Scotland leave Scottish service personnel or indeed uh, people in the armed forces who are either based in Scotland at the moment or are going to have new bases in Scotland? I think the answer to that question depends primarily on what the defence policy of the UK is uh, after uh, secession. Uh, And I think there will be strong elements in the UK who say, well, we want to maintain defence forces as close as possible to what we had before the breakup. Uh, But they all have lost uh, 8% of the population, 8% of the funding for defence. So uh, the UK that remains may have to give a rather higher priority to defence than they do now but they may want to simply because the UK's greatest fear will be that the breakup of the country will will reduce the country's international reputation, international power so they'll want to offset that uh, and it's, it's at least possible that the UK will want to it will certainly, I think, want to maintain the, the nuclear facilities at, at Fastlane and Coolport, but they may also want to maintain uh, some of the RAF, perhaps even some of the army facilities in, in Scotland for some period as a foreign base. So I don't think we should assume, we should certainly not assume that an independent Scotland is going to be taking over large parts of the Royal Navy and RAF. I just don't think that's the case. It's, it's rather more credible in the case of the army. But even then, the, the, the UK may be happy to keep those people on for some time. Professor Malcolm Chalmers speaking to me earlier. Um, Christopher, is any of this actually going to happen? If you, go in, if you go to the MOD and you talk to them and say, well, you know, what are you thinking about this? Are you, how are, you, are you working anything out on this? They say, well, no, 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 we don't. We, it's, not, it's, it's a bit premature. We don't deal in, in theory. You know, the whole, pr- the whole point about strategy, etc., you spend all your time dealing with theory. Let's get this right. Um, to maintain any uh, military structure, you have to have a lot of money. At the moment, in the plans, even in the SNP plans, there is no way they've even got a central bank. Where will their central bank come from? Bank of England. That's the first thing to consider. So they can't afford to have all this. The second thing, you could have a central... You could have, for example, a sovereign base area for for the nuclear submarines at at Fas Lane. And you could rent them off uh, a, a new Scotland. And that would be very attractive because they'd get money which they desperately need. I think the other thing... Go against the principles slightly, though, wouldn't it? Our politicians never do that, do they? <laughs> <No>. the, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, but the other thing, I tell you something, I know a lot of people in Scotland who will say, yeah, we're going to have to be independent. And when it comes to the referendum, when they vote for it, they may even vote for an independence thing on the referendum. When it actually comes to vote for independence... No way are they going to vote, and that's what they tell you. Okay, elsewhere, 11 EU nations want a radical overhaul of Europe's defence policies. And Britain, what does that mean for Britain? That's far more interesting, you know, because that's a doable. 
um, what's, what's going to happen? If you, if you want to fix the Greece, Eurozone thing, Spain, Spain etc., uh, Europe's got to be far more federal. In other words, you've got to have much con- more control over of how, how governments act. One of the ways they want to do this, and the 11 ministers that, who, who, who have been putting this thing together, 11 governments really, not including the United Kingdom, say we've got to have a foreign minister, a European foreign minister, to decide foreign policy, and we've also got to have a defence minister. Um, Britain and France are going to fight this one. And it's going to be very important. It's going to be a very, very big fight uh, to, to get against it. They will get against it, but they're going to have to think right ahead, a long way ahead, maybe maybe a decade. Europe is heading for federalization. The structure of it will involve uh, the military and foreign policy. Uh, so that's a, that's a given. Uh, and that's why France and the United Kingdom are going to fight this one. All right, Christopher, stay with us. It was described by the Germans as the outstanding commando raid of the war when a dozen British commandos set out by canoe on a mission to blow up Nazi merchant ships off the coast of Bordeaux. Only two survived to tell the tale of Operation Frankton in 1942, immortalised by the film The Cockleshell Heroes. But a chance meeting with one of them inspired Paddy Ashdown, a former officer in the Special Boat Service, to write his version in a new book called A Brilliant Little Operation, which has been published to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the mission. I spoke to him earlier and he told me the raid was effectively a suicide mission. Could we reach these ships 70 miles up the Gironde um, to 10,000 German troops and take them out? The army said they couldn't, they didn't have the men to do the job. The navy said too far up the estuary, we can't do that. The the RAF said too inaccurate in our bombing, you can kill too many Frenchmen. So they asked Blondie Hasler and 10 Marines in canoes to do the job. This was a raid by special forces deep, deep into enemy territory, which had strategic purpose in the war effort. And why do you think it is important to tell this story? Is it because of that, the strategic element of it? Yes, I mean, I think there are several reasons. I mean, one for me is that it is the founding event of the Special Boat Service to which I belonged, and the modern Special Boat Service takes its ethos and its context, and in many ways its culture uh, from that raid, though it existed before the SBS, but they were doing small raids rather than strategic ones. Um, But then there's a second reason. I think this was the first small raid used of special forces during the war, which had genuine strategic purpose. Nowadays we understand that you use special forces not just to slit the throat, but to carry out strategic operations to assist the main operations. And this was the first of those. There was a particularly poignant moment, which you write about in the book, where the man leading the mission had to let go two of his men to their fate on the River Gironde. Otherwise, the mission would have been scuppered. It's not an easy decision to make, is it? No, it's a very tough decision, but every commander has to make it. And what's fascinating is that, you know, we are tempted, especially from that dreadful Hollywood film you referred to, to look at Blondie Hasler as some chromium-pated military obsessive. He absolutely wasn't. He was a very complex man who doubted his own courage, loved his men, would never ask them to do anything he wouldn't do. Extraordinary moment, before the raid, he gathers them together in the submarine. So look, if any of you go down, nobody's going to go to help them. The raid comes first, the operation comes first. They'll have to catch as catch can. They'll have to make their own way. They'll have to swim ashore and then make it across land back to Britain. And he instructs them, under no circumstances, is the operation to be held up if somebody gets into trouble. But when the moment arrives, he can't do it. 
he actually rescues these two who go through a tidal rip capsize and he then puts the oper operation in direct jeopardy by making sure they hang on to the back of his canoes and takes them in as close to the shore as he can before continuing with the operation. The ironic thing about all of this mission is it need never have happened because there was a rival mission. The rival organisation in London, the Special Operations Executive, had sent their own people in. And when Blondie Hasler and his Marines were actually planting limpet mines on the ships, a hundred yards away, sitting in a cafe, where six British officers had been parachuted in over the previous months with all the explosives, planning to do the operation the following day. And do you think those cock-ups still go on today? Uh-huh. Well, I don't suppose we're free of them, I have to say. It's not impossible. Now, you mentioned the man who led this mission. You met him, Blondie Hasler, on a train by chance. What happened? Well, I was in my early days in the SBS. I was returning knackered after doing the devices to Westminster Canoe Race. Dumped myself in a carriage that had compartments in those days slumped in the corner, pulled my camouflage smock around me and fell asleep. And just before I fell asleep, I saw this man observing me, very distinguished looking, in his 50s, bald head, that striking moustache. And I was woken, I think the train juddered to a halt in somewhere like Woking or somewhere. And he started saying, I don't know, so you're a Royal Marine, I suppose. And I told him about the, where are you coming from? I said, just on the device, mm, the device is to Westminster, it's pretty tough, isn't it? You going down to pool? I said, yes. And I said, look, mind your own business. It's a secret. I'm not allowed to discuss this with people not entitled to know. He then got out of, I suppose, Winchester. And afterwards, when the train arrived in Poole, I'd got out, hitched my rucksack on my back, and a friend bounded up to me and said, what was he like? I said, who? Oh. He said, Blondie Hasler. I'd actually been in the same cabin there, the train compartment with my hero, uh, and the hero of the story, and never recognised it. I feel embarrassment and pain at how rude I was to him. And I never met him again. Paddy Ashdown speaking to me earlier. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Afghanistan's not a country you'd normally associate with cricket, but tomorrow the country's national team will take on England in the World 2020 in Sri Lanka. It's their second appearance in the competition. Two years ago, they played in the West Indies. But this time around, expectations are higher, with the popularity of cricket rising in Afghanistan. On the line now, from Colombo, is the BBC's cricket correspondent, Jonathan Agnew. Um, good to speak to you, Jonathan. England fans might think this is an easy draw. So, first of all, tell us about the Afghan team. Are they any good? Good evening to you. Well, they are. You know, it's wonderful that a spark of hope comes out of such a difficult uh, part of the world. I think the fact that Afghanistan are, are, are competing in this tournament is, is, is a testimony, really, to everyone who's, who's had a part to play in what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment. And, and, and these are terrific cricketers. They, they are uh, very energetic, uh, rather frenetic, rather excitable, very passionate, rather like, just like the people themselves, really. Uh, you never quite know where the ball is going to fly around next. But I watched them play India last night. They lost, but they put up a really good fight. And had they held their catches, um, they, they might easily have beaten India. You never know. And, of course, in this form of the game, the shortened form of the game, these are upsets happen. So I can tell you, I've just been down to the England training. I've spoken to their captain, uh, Stuart Broad. They are not going to take Afghanistan lightly in the least tomorrow. How much practice do the players get? Well, this is an interesting point. You know, I, I think a lot of the Afghanistan cricketers actually go across into Peshawar. As you know, it's a very porous border there. And it was because of the displacement of the people in the first place, 10, 12 years ago, into Pakistan, into refugee camps, that cricket started to be played. There's actually no history of cricket being played in Afghanistan 
before then. It was simply when these people went into Pakistan. When they started to go back again into their own country, they took cricket with them. It's actually a very similar story to Rwanda, where into the, the, the people there displaced went into Kenya and Uganda and, and, and Rwanda's a, a, a French colony, after all. They have now adopted cricket. And this is rather what's happened to Afghanistan. And it, it, it's, just, it's just wonderful that, that the local people have a new sport to adopt. And they really take it very seriously indeed now. And yet not so many supporters out there for them in Sri Lanka, but well, dedicated no, ones that are. But they have a few, there are a few waving their flag very happily uh, yesterday. You know, it's it, it's wonderful, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to, to take cricket around the world, and that's really what tournaments like this do. You know, I don't know whether Afghanistan will be playing test cricket. They've got a long way to go before that, and clearly uh, the infrastructure within Afghanistan has got to change an awful lot before they progress from this. But make no mistake, they're here because they deserve to be here. They're here on merit, and they bring with them their own flair and their own personality uh, and something that actually is, is very invigorating to watch, very passionate. So I'm looking forward to tomorrow, rather more perhaps than the players are. All right, Jonathan Agnew, I hope the match goes well. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, um, we saw Afghanistan at the Olympics and Paralympics. Now, cricket, at sport a sign of perhaps sort of a healing, or is that just a bit too clichéd for me to say? Well, it's not too clichéd for you to say. No. Be... <laughs> what are you suggesting? <laughs> listen, listen, just think about this. Uh, in the 19th century, India was India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And at the second Af Afghan war, they were playing cricket in what is now Kabul. So that was, that was 150, 160 years ago. No, nearly 200 years ago. They were actually playing cricket. So let's not think it's a, it's a new game. Um, and, it, and Jonathan's right when he says, you know, Rwanda, they sort of pick up a bat, etc. Don't forget Holland. People laugh, say Holland can't play cricket. They can mm. play cricket. Ireland... They can play cricket. And, of course, one of the best captains I ever saw, captain of England, was a Scot. Mm. Now, can mm, you imagine that, having you? to play that in the weather in, in, in Scotland? Um, so, you know, Afghanistan, is, it's, got a, it's not got a history of cricket, but it's got a history of cricket being played. Just briefly before we go, Christopher, in Afghanistan, we shouldn't forget there's been a baby born at Camp Bastion. But um, as you'd say, looking at history, um, it's not the first time a baby's been born um, on the front line. No, you see, we, we were just, just talking there about this sort of the Afghan wars. There's three Afghan wars in, in, the, in the 19th century. Uh, England, British forces against the Afghans. The British used to take their camp followers with them. The first baby born in Afghanistan war was in 1840. There's a thing to have. And there's a thought. I wonder what the name was. Christopher, thank you very much for your time today and thanks for listening. If you have views on any of the topics we covered, you can get in touch with us. Email us at sitrep at bfbs.com. That's it for today. We'll be back the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.